You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research here at the University of Victoria. I'm Colleen, and I'll be your host today. I am so excited today to have as my guest on Beyond the Jargon, Nick Stanger, who is a colleague of mine from the Ph.D. program in Faculty of Education, Curriculum, and Instruction. Welcome, Nick. Thank you so much, Colleen. We'll just start with just your particular field, and then we might back up and get some stories from you, if that's okay. okay. So what exactly is your specialty in curriculum and instruction? I'm looking directly at environmental education, which has a whole history and litany that would describe it. But in particular, I'm focusing on how place affects us. I'm most interested in, in this idea that we are very connected to place as humans, and we have all of physical and we have mental connections, psychological connections, and spiritual connections to place. And so this doesn't really show up very much in a K-12 system. Um, nevertheless, are sort of outside of our formal schooling system. Meaning, like, when you're talking place, are you talking about a city? Are you talking about a building? Are you talking about countryside versus, you know, urban setting? Or is it all combined? Well, all of it is combined. I mean, scale is an interesting question when you, when you consider place, because we really do identify with different scales of place. Mm-hmm, definitely. For instance... I'm looking specifically at childhood places, those transformative places in your backyard or the back alley, or even for some people, they were the porches of their apartment where they had a few plants that they connected with. And they would go out there for a little bit of what some researchers call solace. Solastalgia is is the loss of that place. Ah. So um, I've been looking at, at, at place in that space, in that sort of specific scale. But other people are looking at place at a much, much larger scale. Like urban designers look at place at an urban scale where you're designing it to be something that's much more inclusive or walkable or safe or whatever. So, okay. Yeah. So it sounds like from what I'm hearing that yours hits a real personal note, like, yeah, like an individual note. I guess all of, all of the studies would eventually hit an individual note at some point, but yours seems to be really particular on an individual's experience. Yeah. And in, and, yeah. The, and in education at the same yeah. time. Uh, yeah. And I'm looking at the implications for education. So really my research is outside of a quote unquote K to 12 educational research project. Okay. It's perfect. Some, it's something that should affect us as humans, but I'm looking with a lens for the implications around education. And that might arise in sort of the curriculum documents. How does place arise in there? Do we yes. actually talk about how we connect to the door that's outside of, or, you know, outside of that door of your classroom? So you'll have 30 kids in your classroom. And the curriculum that arises might be something about the Amazon rainforest, where you're living in a temperate rainforest you know, in, in North America. Well, do you connect with the Amazon rainforest in the same way as you would with the forest that's literally on the property of your of your school. So mm. so there's some implications there that I'm interested in, but also I'm interested in sort of larger educational questions, um, sort of the curriculum theory space where what is it that we're doing as humans when we start to learn and how do we learn in place? It seems to me like I grew up in a school system that was, well, in a way school systems are the way we have them now are relatively new in, yep. in the design of all humanity, right? Sure. So we're still learning. But mine was in a, I was from a small town and we had a school building and you went inside all day for six classes 
And the only class where we went outside sometimes was gym, mm-hmm. and that was to do some sport on the field or something. But other than that, I was I was inside. Yeah. I was inside, and and I was inside square rooms with. Of course, we didn't have all this technology that you have where you can bring the world in. So that in and of itself, or it's what you're exploring, how just that particular environment impacts how I learn about what I'm learning about. That's right. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So really, what it comes down to is. We as North Americans spend huge amounts of time inside, in sedentary sittings or non-moving situations. And that's really affecting us, both our physical health, but also our mental health. And it also affects our connection to nature, which is such a fundamental connection that we essentially don't nourish anymore. Yeah, it's like we went from the extreme where children working in the field, literally, you know, picture 1800s and that's how you had to survive. And then it became a way to help advance as more and more people had the opportunity to go away from the field and into or the factory that was another way and then into a school system to learn so that you didn't have to do that but it's almost like did the pendulum swing too far and we became so inside that all of a sudden we forgot that there was some benefit to the outside well and what you just said is so poignant this idea of the factory as being sort of this tipping point if you look closely at schools, really they are factories. I mean, they're they're large buildings with large systems that you know make it function. You have this input of students and and this idea that we fill them with some sort of curriculum. No, this is not always the case. Obviously, there are teachers out there that are much more animated that use inquiry as their approach. Oh, to. right to teaching. And it's not saying, you're not saying that schools were doing anything to do any harm, but it's just the way everybody's doing the best that they can to educate as many as you can. And it does, I guess, kind of become like a factory assembly line. It's an industrial complex, right? It's a whole paradigmatic shift that happened post-agricultural era into the industrial era where we had to create an efficiency of sort so that we could fill these, this complexity of jobs we had just created through the industry. So with that, we also lost some of our connections to place and to nature. And and that's really affecting how we then treat nature later on in life when we become a, a professional in some, in some space. That might mean you're a business person in a tower in Toronto, and your sort of acknowledgement that what you're doing connects to nature in some way is lost because it really never was... Uh, something that was exposed to you. And I'm not just talking about these fundamentals of sustainability or climate change. I'm talking about those very emotional connections. Yes, yes. I connect with that. I'm a person that likes the stories, right? Mm -hmm. And the emotional connection in in something. So what's so great for the people out there listening, uh, I've had Nick in some of my classes. And one of the things that that I've always, you knew immediately meeting Nick is, is the animated passion, right, that comes through in all of your work, and it's so great. It's great because Nick and I are both pretty animated (laughs) in our courses, but it's wonderful. So I'm curious, how did you come to this point? So you're doing a PhD. Where are you in the PhD process, by the way? I've done two years. I've finished my candidacy, so I'm now a PhD candidate. All right. And uh, Which means you are ready to go forward and research. No, uh, at this point I have to have my dissertation proposal approved, so I'm finished finished that to all extents and purposes and that goes back to my committee and at that point I start looking at my ethics approval ah, for my okay. research. Excellent. So I have a, a design for my research project and, and once all of that is approved 
then I get to go out and actually bang on doors and talk to people. Okay, okay, so what brought you to this point in life? How did you get here? Was this something that you knew when you were five that you wanted to do? I mean, it seems like something that would come on a little later. It's not like something a child would say, "Ah, this is what I want to do when I grow up, but it's so fascinating, Mm -hmm. so I'm just curious of the journey. I think, to sort of start that answer, I think I have been schooled into thinking that school is the way that I should go. So so I have a little bit of a uh, jaded reason (laughs) for being here, and I also see the positive aspect of it. There is always a shadow in in what we do and the actions and behaviors, but maybe the light side is, at some point, I figured out how to manipulate education for my needs, rather than be manipulated by education. Yes. And that was probably in the middle or the beginning of my master's program. Now, to get to my master's program, there was I have a story that might illustrate it. That's something that I, I've written quite a bit about, and I'm, I'm sort of exploring as somewhat related to my place okay. concept. It was an older moment. I used to be a, uh, an ecologist. I still sort of consider myself an ecologist. I spent about six summers climbing trees. Okay. Like literally climbing some of the tallest trees in North America. Did you have a degree in ecology? Yeah, I did a conservation biology undergrad. And was that right out of high school? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, in my third year, I, I, I lived in New Zealand and uh, oh. convinced my entomology professor, the, the bugs researcher, that I could climb trees with him. And instead of looking at bugs, which I was sort of distantly interested in, <laughs> I was much more interested in how plants were growing on other trees. So mm. they're called epiphytes. Okay, um, thank living you. On top, ep- epiphytes, <laughs> nice. Living on top. Nice, thank and, you. Uh, and so epiphytes are these things that I just spent six summers spent uh, just focusing on. In New Zealand, I climbed crazy trees. There's beech trees, red beech trees, and kahikatea, and, and looking at orchids and filmy ferns, which are only one cell thick. You could see right through them. They have this like, beautiful green oh, glow. Wow. And I found earthworms in the canopy, which is a very rare thing to find in the canopy. You know, the question is, how does an earthworm get up a tree into the canopy? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, you know what's going through our mind right now, of right. course, because uh, the way that I can relate, since I haven't been there, you know I'm thinking Lord of the Rings. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. The movie, of course. Yeah. And and the, the Wonderful Forest, where Kate Blanchett, you know, <laughs> makes her great appearance. So is that where you were? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it looked very similar to that. It was, a, it was the <gasps> temperate amazing. side of the South Island in a great big crazy forest stunning yeah it was it was quite beautiful drippy sort of space and and similar to the forests that we have here and so i started thinking about that well what what does it look like what how do epiphytes these plants that grow in other Mm -hmm. trees how do they exist in new zealand versus canada and so when i came back to canada i found a job researching epiphytes and every summer i would go up and climb douglas fir and sitka spruce and and these and the trees that we all sort of identify with british columbia these massive ones with that you know you could park a bus under yes Uh, so i i climbed one day this is sort of the story that changed my life in terms of where i am now i was up a tree i was up a (laughs) 70 meter sitka spruce tree and it took me about a day to get up trees. I, I used a very complex methodology that required me to have a crossbow. This is crazy. This is the greatest job. Why have I never heard of this job? Yeah, not really. You have to have a great skill, a totally unique skill set to be able to do this. I'm... Yeah, I was trained to do this, yeah. And, and there's, there's a few uh, researchers that do this for a living. So I sort of trained under them. Some of them are actually at UVic. Neville Winchester and, and Richard Ring, who are in uh, biology program. So, nice. Um, 
so I was doing the plant stuff, and I was using this crossbow oh, to sick. shoot fishing line over the top of trees. And then the fishing line I'd use to pull larger and larger ropes up so that I eventually had a climbing rope over the top of a tree. Of course, I didn't know what was going on way 70 meters up through the canopy. Right. I didn't know whether it was over a safe enough branch and all this stuff. So there was oh a lot of gosh. risk involved. Uh, yes. And then you would ascend, and then I ascended one side of that rope using a particular technique called the single rope technique. And that's just a lot of little grippy hand things that would allow me to, to move up a tree. So that, oh that whole process took about half a day. So one day after doing all of this at the top of a tree on the road to Bamfield in a little special ecological reserve that nobody knows about. Oh my gosh. I was sitting there. It was a Sitka spruce tree and I was looking out over Sit, uh, Sarita Lake and I, uh, I noticed it was, it was a bluebird day. Absolutely beautifully gorgeous, not a breath of wind. It was warm. I took my regular break at the top of this tree. Okay. At that point, I would have samples with me in bags, and I would have measured and looked at different plants that were growing up there. And in the same forest, I had found something like 50 genuses, so not even species level, 50 sort of families of plants on one branch at one point. So we're talking coral reef kind of diversity. Yes. Very, very diverse forest now, mostly in North America, you find mosses and lichens as the as the diversity. So okay. As opposed to the drippy forests of New Zealand, where it's mostly orchids and ferns, in North America, it's a little different. That, okay. So that was my finding. But here I was, the top of the tree, thinking about all this stuff, and the tree started to move. Oh, my gosh. But of course, remember, there's no wind. So I thought, using my logical scientific brain... Hmm, I wonder why this tree is moving. <laughs> I was just thinking, yes. Of course, I've seen every animal horror flick on the planet, so right. I immediately go to, what's after me? Sure, sure. <laughs> right, we don't have any monkeys in North America, and my, I might have gone there if I, if I had thought, thought that. But uh, I went through sort of the various logical, rational arguments. So uh, there's a story about hemlock. Hemlock tend to be very weak. Uh, even on days that have no wind, sometimes mm. they fall over. But I wasn't in a hemlock; I was in a Sitka spruce, which are, which were used for the masts of the uh, ships that first arrived here. So wow. they're very, very strong, very straight trees. So I, I wasn't worried about the tree actually falling over. There was nothing going on there, and of course, there's no wind, so there's no movement. And I'm inconsequential in terms of my weight compared to this tree. Of course. So, of you know, course. They're multiple tons, and I'm not <laughs> <Yes>. multiple tons. <laughs> right. So I'm not going to sway this tree with my weight. Right. And I started really realizing that uh, of the 400 trees I'd climbed so far, that I hadn't really been paying attention to the tree itself as a living organism. I knew intellectually it was living, that, you know, there's xylem and phloem, and there's nutrients that go up and around and, and so forth, and it grows, and it's, you know, multiple hundreds right. of years old. But I hadn't really realized oh, these are living organisms, and they might communicate in ways that I don't and can't understand. And maybe for some reason I had sort of this moment of being outside of my body and actually seeing myself swaying in this tree. This tree is communicating with me in some oh, way that's beyond excellent. what I've come to sort of realize, a very spiritual experience where I suddenly saw beyond the scientific understanding of this tree to a much deeper sense of what living organisms and the planet means wow um that's brilliant and in that very same uh moment i realized i was doing the wrong thing i wasn't affecting the change with these strange little papers about strange little plans that i really was yearning for 
I, I have been, I had been yearning for large change. You know, I had been reading about the planet really coming under this onslaught of human uh, development. For the two and a half people that read my papers, oh. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't changing the world in the way I wanted to. So it was at that point that I realized that education was something that was important to me. Because education is, has this particular privilege, and that allows educators the ability to take their students, their learners, to places and through experiences. I wanted people to have this type of experience. Whether it was up a tree or not wouldn't matter because I know right. these experiences happen for all of us through different times of our lives where we suddenly are outside of our bodies or we, yes. we connect in a deeper way that's sort of beyond this cognitive, highly rational sense. And it's not to say that that's a bad way of thinking. No, I mean, we all have to start from somewhere. We have yeah. this structure that we operate from, right? Exactly. And then we grow, and hopefully, as I see it, we're kind of born into this world of parameters, of pluses and minuses. And hopefully, as we grow, we increase our pluses, and, and we maybe decrease our minuses. Sure. And it's not because anybody was bad, inherently bad, or whatever, or it's right or wrong. It was just, it is what it is. And you only can know what you're exposed to. Right. And if you're exposed to a certain way of looking at something not just exposed to the physical environment around you, you will actually see the physical environment only in that way. Mm -hmm. And then you go out into the world and then you have a moment of, well, well, wait a minute. All of a sudden it's like, you mean this could actually look completely differently? It's a really strange moment. It's hard to articulate at the it time. Is. It's very hard to articulate even afterwards. Yeah. You know, it's taken me a while to figure out how to craft that story enough so that it makes sort of sense and usually when i get to the point of and then the tree was moving right then you, you know. bring up lord of the rings and you are a hobbit in, <laughs> right, right. in an ent yeah, yeah traveling yeah. along <laughs> to the south yes right and we just don't but yet that's symbolic right there yeah that that whole moment actually in lord of the rings two towers right when they first see the end yes you could say that's okay that's just fiction but on the other hand it is kind of that moment they were there in a tree and by these trees and all of a sudden realizing, wait a minute, yeah. we've been destroying these and they have, they speak, they have a language, they have a connection yeah. and to then, us. And we've known this for a while. I mean, J.R.R. Tolkien is a modern thinker on this if compared to the 15,000 years of, of human presence in this part of the world. Yes. With the Coast Salish nations and the Chalnuth and, and where I was. Trees are revered as having spirit, as being part of the community that is that is in dialogue, that you're constantly in dialogue with. And so through this experience, I started to connect much more with an indigenous way of thinking um, mm. and, and really thinking broadly about the term indigenous. Humans are indigenous to earth, right? Right. We are not alien. Right. Yet. Right. And so there's some there's something in there that I haven't quite figured out, but there's many researchers that are calling for an indigenous approach to research, even for people like myself who don't have an in, a capital I indigenous First Nations background to this part of the world. I come from a community that was arguably once indigenous. Right. I mean, yes, we all like we yeah. all come from somewhere. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, so there is some uh, interesting poignancy around that. Uh, eventually, after this experience and realizing education was my thing, I did a master's in environmental education where I got to figure out, well, here, there's some language around this that I might be able to articulate. And, and from there, I moved to, to doing a, a PhD because I really loved teaching. That moment 
and privilege to have experiences with students and actually moving away from that idea of students and, and moving to a, a more community-centric learning experience where mm. your students are just people who've signed up to have experiences. And they also provide experiences to me as a teacher. So right. it's, it's been a neat journey. And so a PhD gives me the sort of permission to create these, these experiences and be part of them. Well, this is wonderful. And now this brings me to the idea of getting outside of the classroom. I think of something we used to call a field trip. Mm-hmm. And you maybe were lucky to have one a year, maybe. Sure. Yeah. If you, you know, depending on the wealth of your school, I didn't come from a, a, a super wealthy school or anything. So are you talking about taking the concept of what somebody views as a one day field trip to making that an everyday experience sure. for all types of classes or certain types or yeah in terms of the k-12 space i envision a complete reformation of the way that we teach and what we teach so that it is not disciplined in the way that it currently is and i want to be careful here because disciplines are important yes having skills in certain disciplines is important oh yes but to see the connections among those disciplines is also important right so that they're not siloed and one way that that is done very easily is by using nature as the matrix for okay. disciplines. So imagine the mathematics of the sky, for instance. Mm. When I taught in a school in the Bahamas, the math course, which was for grade 11, and in grade 11 typically you're doing trigonometry, Okay. they used celestial navigation. I mean, we're talking 400-year-old technology of sextants shooting stars in the horizon to figure out how trigonometry works. But through that, they also understood how they existed on Earth and and how we on Earth relate to celestial bodies. Oh, so, I so would have related better to trigonometry. I know environmental education through math, through trigonometry, and it it was a brilliant example of how we can be disciplined, but we also are starting to see the interconnectedness of that discipline to other elements, the the more complex systems that we live in. It sounds like you would be this great like consultant to go about and two school systems. Would that be some sort of ideal? I don't want to say job, but you know, sure. a vocation or are you looking more specifically? I mean, do you have any ideas or are, are you waiting just to see how the universe, what the universe offers you, so to speak? Well, one idea has already manifested and that was to start a national NGO a national non-governmental organization okay. that supports children and families getting outside more. So it's called the Child and Nature Alliance. And I'm currently the chair for that organization. And we have representation in every province. And the whole point of it is to support these organizations like camps or schools that are doing alternative things. Again, the word alternative is a weird word. You know, we yes. were talking earlier about how school used to probably be done in the fields. Yes. Right? Yes. So it's not really alternative to go outside. (laughs) Schools that are doing uh, more along the lines of of these pieces. And also researchers. So we're supporting these organizations, families and researchers by giving them sort of evidence towards why this is important, by connecting them across Canada, by influencing policy in various provincial organizations. And actually by one of the most important things we do is supporting young leaders in helping their peers get outside because of course the scourge of the digital age where we spend seven hours a day 
in front of a screen yeah. is something that's most felt by sort of the younger generations and arguably maybe the older generations too, where we sit at these computers for so long. And that's our pro- productivity is by clackety clacking on some, on some keyboard. So this organization, this Child and Nature Alliance, is is a young organization, but it's it's been that's been one of my interests in actually trying to create a paradigm shift so that it's uh, accessible to people who n- aren't normally interested in this stuff. I I like the idea of you presenting something that it's almost like it's getting us to see nature again, to sure. see where we're walking. Because one of the things that I've noticed, I happen to be here without um, I don't have a lot of communication devices mm-hmm. on me right now. I'm kind of low tech. And so when I'm riding a bus or walking around, I'm actually looking Mm -hmm. and looking up because I don't have a device to look down and be, I don't know, pushing my thumbs on, texting something. And one of the things that I've noticed is that I'm in, I'm not from this part of the world, so to speak. I've never been in the Northwest till I came to University of Victoria and it's stunning. It's beautiful, gorgeous island. So I'm always looking up skies, trees, or at the water. And I'm, I'm fascinated by... How each day I, it's, I feel like when even when I'm on a walk, I walk by people, they're all looking down, and they're not even looking down at the ground. Mm-hmm. They're actually looking at a device. Mm-hmm. And they're on the bus that way. They're everywhere. And I'm not trying to, I'm not cutting anybody's lifestyle down. Mm-hmm. But I was just, I was fascinated the other day when I realized how many people are going places and actually traveling and not looking at it. Yep. Yeah, there was a great New Yorker magazine cover cover recently where it was a uh, it's a shadow of somebody taking a photo with a phone of a family, and all of the family was looking down at their yes. tech, their <laughs> devices in some sort in some beautiful Hawaiian setting. You yes, know, it was yes. brilliant, brilliant New Yorker cover. Actually, that that reminds me, Joy, Joy, my wife and I decided to do a, a little research project where we recently we flew to New York. And to Maine State, we're in both states there. And, oh, uh, Maine, gorgeous. We uh, we decided to go absolutely digital free, nice, no, like nothing. We didn't bring thing, bring yes. any devices with us. New York, I mean, this is a place where finding things to do is relatively easy. Were you in New York City? Because yeah, I lived City. in upstate New York, oh, okay. and I know that there's a, there's, yeah, a there's a whole a difference. Yeah, there's a difference. <laughs> well, we were in New York City. Yep, and, New and York so City. There we are. There we are. You know, having devices would be useful. There's apps for all of the different things that are going on in the city right, and all of this course. stuff. I mean, it's just it's a digital space. But we didn't have anything, and it forced us to talk to people. Yes. And they were over the moon yeah. to help us out. They were just, you know, they would look things up for us, or they would say, you know, the best restaurants you should go to. Oh, let me tell you about the best restaurants. <laughs> they'd sit down, and they'd... Nice. And, and some, one of them invited us uh, to their, their nephew's, like, birthday in Central Park <laughs> on Sunday. You know, these connections, which I think are really being lost. Yes. Which fundamentally are actually part of this connection to community yes. and connection to place, those conversations are not happening as much anymore. We are, our conversations are so globally divergent that we're sitting here talking with people around the world, which is cool, yes. arguably, and yes. powerful in its own way, as we right. see in the Arab Spring. But it, it reduces the value of the sort of local knowledge. The and present the, moment. The present yeah, moment. The yeah, the present exactly. right there. Well, and it also, when you say the word conversation, I realize they're not just looking down. They're also not hearing no. because they have those little things in their Earbuds, ears. Yeah. And, well, aside from the fact that I don't even want to think about the deafening that's actually happening to your physical ear, but right. 
just the missing out and the not hearing of things around you. And uh, yeah, it's really kind of fascinating. But I think, again, it's one of those things where it's it's kind of new, like our school systems in, in the grand scheme of things. And sometimes when you get something new, the pendulum just kind of swings a little yeah. far. And so we're, you know, maybe it'll be swinging back with the, the work that you're doing and mm-hmm. kind of this awareness to say, okay, you know, let's not negate all the technology, but let's just, you know, kind of rein it in a bit and remember what's really, mm-hmm. what's really here first that, you know, you can have all the technology you want, but if you lose the nature, we've got nothing to stand on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, so. Well, yeah. Or live on. I mean, we, yeah. we require this nature to live. Yeah, so my second piece that I'm really looking for in my future is sort of a teacher-researcher. So whether it's through academia or it's running my own school, you know, the the old idea of many educators starting their own school so they get to control essentially what happens right. in that school. So I've been playing around with a variety of schools and running a school that would essentially be all outside. And there are some great examples of this. In fact, in Souk, there's a new nature kindergarten where everything is done outside. Oh, great. Starting this fall. So that's that's it's really neat seeing those types of schools start I think up. that's fascinating. Our time is up at that's the moment, okay. but yes, thank you for sharing. An amazing pleasure to be here oh, talking to you. Thanks. This is uh-huh. so great. Yeah. Again, thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV.